Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hey, y'all. Do you have your tickets for LeVar Burton Reads Live yet? That's right. I am coming out to do this thing in front of a live audience near you. I'll read a story with live music and talk to the author, and you can be a part of it. And since people have been tweeting me and asking, yes, I give you full permission to wear your pajamas if that's how you want to roll. Get comfy and come out or send a friend to one of these cities. San Francisco. I'm with you this Sunday, April 29th, with the science fiction author and io9 co-founder Charlie Jane Anders. I'm in Los Angeles on May 2nd with the author Nalo Hopkinson to hear a fantastic and spooky Caribbean tale. I'm going to be in Portland on May 4th. And the story? Well, I'm keeping that one a secret just a little while longer. And finally, I will finish this thing out in Seattle on May 6th with the wonderful writer Nisi Shaw. That's going to be a real treat. I'll have tickets available for special meet and greets after the show in every city as well. Tickets are selling out quickly. As I record this, there are still a couple of places where they are nearly sold out. So don't wait. Go to www.lavarburtonpodcast.com slash tour and get you some. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Well, y'all, I have got a special episode for you today. We recorded this story live with WBEZ's podcast Passport in Chicago. The story, The Winds of Harmatan, is by the incredible Nnedi Okorafor, who you will remember from her story, The Baboon War, that I shared earlier on the podcast. Nnedi is an award-winning novelist and short fiction author based in Chicago. She writes African-based science fiction, magical realism, and fantasy for both children and adults. She released the much-anticipated third novella in her Binti series a few months ago. Binti is the story of a young African woman who leaves her family to study at an interstellar university. 
She's written a comic book series for Marvel's Black Panther, and they have just announced that she will write another one called Wakanda Forever. And, of course, her novel Who Fears Death is being developed by HBO with none other than George R.R. Martin as one of its executive producers. And I was also honored to have live musical accompaniment by another Chicago native, the multi-instrumentalist, multi-talented Cahil El-Zabar. He draws on both African and African-American traditions in his music, and his music was so, so wonderful. I am thrilled that you get to enjoy it here. Plus, stay tuned after the story ends for my conversation with Nettie. Now, today's story from Nettie's collection, Kabu Kabu, a really splendid bunch of tales. It's set in Nigeria, and it follows a young woman as she finds her chi. It's called The Winds of Harmatan. The Harmatan winds are a real and powerful seasonal phenomenon in West Africa, just as this young woman in the story is a powerful force of nature herself. So, if you are ready, let us take a deep breath. That's my favorite part of the story. (laughs) And we'll begin. The Winds of Harmatan by Nettie Okorofo. Asukwo followed her nose and used her bird-like sense of direction. All around her were men selling yams and women selling cocoa yams. She always knew where to find the good ones. They had a starchier smell. Her mother didn't believe her when she said she could smell specific vegetables in the market, but she could. Asuko was just about to jostle past a slow-moving man carrying a bunch of plantains on his shoulder when an old woman grabbed one of her seven locks. The woman sat on a wooden stool, a pyramid of eggs on a straw mat at her feet. Next to her, a man was selling very dried-up-looking yams. Yes, Mama, Asuko said. She did not know the woman, but she knew to always show respect to her elders. The woman smiled and let go of Asukwo's hair. You like the sky, wind girl? She asked. Asukwo froze, feeling tears heat her eyes. How does she know? Asukwo thought. She will tell my mother. Asukwo's strong sense of smell wasn't the only thing her mother didn't believe in, even when she saw it with her own eyes. Asukwo's face still ached from the slap she'd received from her mother yesterday morning, but Asukwo couldn't help what happened when she slept. The man selling yams brushed past her to hand a buyer his change of several calories. He looked at her and then sneezed. Asukwo frowned, and the old woman laughed. Even your own father is probably allergic to you, wind girl, she said in her phlegmy voice. 
Asuko looked away, her hands fidgeting. All except one. You watch for him. Don't listen to what they all say. He's your chi. All of your kind are born with one. You go out and find him. How much for ten eggs? A young woman asked, stepping up to the old woman. My chi? Asuko whispered, the old woman's words bouncing about her mind. Asuko didn't move. She knew exactly whom the woman spoke of. Sometimes she dreamt about him. He could do what she could do. Maybe he could do it better. Give me five calories, the old woman said to her customer. She gave Asuko a hard push back into the market crowd without a word and turned her attention to selling her eggs. Asuko tried to look back, but there were too many people between her and the old woman now. After she'd bought her yams, she didn't bother going back to find the old woman. But from that day on, she watched the sky. Asuko was one of the last. It is whispered words known as the bush radio and the bitter grumblings of the trees that bring together her story. She was a wind seeker, one of the people who could fly. And a wind seeker's life is dictated by more than wind. Eleven years later, the year of her 20th birthday, the Harmatan winds never came. Dry, Dusty and cool, these winds had formed over the Sahara and blown their fresh air all the way to the African coast from December to February since humans began walking the earth, except for that year. That year, the cycle was disrupted, old ways poisoned. This story will tell you why. Asuko was the fourth daughter of Chief Ibok's third wife. She was not fat. She still possessed a sort of voluptuous beauty with her round hips and strong legs, but her hair crept down her back like ropes of black fungus. She was born this way, emerging from her mother's womb with seven glistening locks of dada, hair hanging from her head like seaweed. And women with dada hair were undesirable. They were thought to be the children of Mamiwata, and the water deity always claimed her children, eventually be it through kidnapping or an early death. Such a woman was not a good investment in the future. Asuko's mother didn't bother taking her to the fattening hut to be secluded for weeks, stuffed with pounded yam and dried chameleons and circumcised with a sharp sliver of coconut shell. Nevertheless, Asuko was content in her village. She didn't want to be bothered with all the preparations for marriage. She spent much of her time in the forest, and rumors that she talked to the sky and did strange things with plants were not completely untrue. Nor were the murmurs of her running about with several young men. When she was 12, she discovered she had a taste for them. The moment a young man from a nearby village named Okwon saw her, however, standing behind her mother's home, peeling bark from a tree and dropping it in her pocket, he fell madly in love. 
She'd been smiling at the tree, her teeth shiny white, her skin blue-black, and her callous hands long-fingered when Ocon approached her that day. She stood eye to eye with him, and he was tall himself. Ocon's father almost didn't allow him to marry her. How can you marry that kind of woman? She has never been to the fattening hut, he bellowed. She has dada hair. I am telling you she is a child of mommy water. She is likely to be barren. My father is right, Okon thought. Asukwo is unclean. But something about her made him love her. Okon was a stubborn young man. He was also smart. And so he continued nagging his father about Asukwo while always assuring him that he would marry a second well-born wife soon afterwards. His father eventually gave in. Asukwo did not want to marry Okon. Since the encounter with the strange old woman years ago, she had been watching the skies for her chi, her other half, the one she was supposed to go and find. She had been dreaming about her chi since she was six, and every year the dreams grew more and more vivid. She knew his voice, his smile, his dry leaf scent. Sometimes she'd even think she saw him in her peripheral vision. She could see that he was tall and dark like her and wore purple. But when she turned her head, he wasn't there. She knew someday she would find him or he would find her, the way a bird knows which way to migrate. But at the time, he was not close and he was not thinking about her much. He was somewhere trying to live his life just as she was, all in due time. Her parents, on the other hand, were so glad a man, any man, wanted to marry Asukwo that they ignored everything else. They ignored how she brought the wind with her wherever she went, her seven locks of thick hair bouncing against her back, and they certainly ignored the fact that though she was shaky, she could fly a few inches off the ground when she really tried. One day, Asukwo had floated to the hut's ceiling to crush a large spider. Her mother happened to walk in. She took one look at Asukwo and then quickly grabbed the basket she'd come for and left. She never mentioned it to Asukwo, nor the many other times she'd seen Asukwo levitate. Asukwo's father was the same way. Mama, I shouldn't marry him, Asukwo said. You know I shouldn't. Her mother waved her hands at her words, and her father greedily held out his hand for the hefty dowry Okwon's family paid to Asukwo's. Asukwo had been taught to respect her elders. Somewhere in the back of her mind, she knew her duty as a woman. So in the end, Asukwo agreed to the marriage, ignoring, denying, and pushing away her thoughts and sightings of her chi. And Asukwo could not help but feel pleased at the satisfied look in her father's eyes and the proud swell of her mother's chest. For so long, they had been looks of dismissal and shame. The wedding was most peculiar. Five bulls and several goats were slaughtered. For a village where meat was only eaten on special occasions, this was wonderful. However, birds, large and small, kept stealing hunks of the meat and mouthfuls of spicy rice from the feast. 
On top of that, high winds swept people's clothes and about during the ceremony, and Asukwo laughed and laughed, her brightly colored lapa swirling about her ankles and the collaret of beads and cowrie shells around her neck clicking. She knew several of the birds personally, especially the owl who took off with an entire goat leg. After their wedding night, Sukwo knew Okwon would not look at another woman. Once in their hut, Sukwo had undressed him and taken him in with her eyes for a long time. Then she nodded, satisfied with what she saw. Okwon had strong, veined hands, rich brown skin, and a long neck. That night, Sukwo had her way with him in ways that left his body tingling and sore and helpless, though she'd have preferred to be outside under the sky. As he lay exhausted, he told her that the women he'd slept with before had succumbed to him with sad faces and lain like fallen trees. Asukwo laughed and said, it's because those women felt as if they had lost their honor. She smiled to herself, thinking about all her other lovers and how none of them had behaved as if they were dead or fallen. That morning, Okon learned exactly what kind of woman he had married. Osukwo was not beside him when he awoke. His eyes grew wide when he looked up. What is this? He screeched, trying to scramble out of bed and falling on the floor instead, his big left foot in the air. He quickly rolled to the side and knelt low staring up at his wife, his mouth agape. Her green lapa and hair hung down, and she hovered horizontally above the bed. Aquan noticed that there was something gentle about how she floated. He could feel a soft breeze circulating around her. He sniffed. It smelled like the arid winds during Harmatan. He sneezed three times and had to wipe his nose. Asukwo slowly opened her eyes, awakened by Aquan's noise. She chuckled and softly floated back onto the bed. She felt particularly good because when she'd awoken, she hadn't automatically fallen as she usually did. That afternoon, they had a long talk where Asukwo laughed and smiled, and Aquan mostly just stared at her and asked, Why? And how? Their discussion didn't get beyond the obvious, but by nighttime, she had him forgetting that she, the woman he had just married, had the ability to fly. For a while, it was as if Asukwo lived under a pleasantly overcast sky. Her dreams of her cheese stopped, and she no longer glimpsed him in the corner of her eye. She wondered if the old woman had been wrong because she was very happy with Aquan. She planted a garden behind their hut. When she was not cooking, washing, or sewing, she was in the garden, cultivating. There were many different types of plants, including sage, kola nut, wild yam root, parsley, garlic, pleurisy root, nettles, cayenne. She grew cassava melons, yam, cocoa yams, beans, and many, many flowers. She sold her produce at the market, and she always came home with her money purse full of calories. She liked to tie it around her waist because she enjoyed the rhythmic clinking it made as she walked. 
When she became pregnant, she didn't have to soak a bag of wheat or barley in her urine to know that she would give birth to a boy. But she knew if she did so, the bag of wheat would sprout and the bag of barley would remain dormant, a sure sign of a male child. The same went with her pregnancy a year later. She loved her two babies, Hogan and Bassie, dearly, and her heart was full for a while. Okwon was so in love with Asukwo that he quietly accepted the fact that she could fly. As long as the rest of the village doesn't know, especially father, what is the harm, he thought. He let her do whatever she wanted, providing that she maintained the house, cooked for him, and warmed his bed at night. He also enjoyed the company of Asukwo's mother, who sometimes visited, though she and Asukwo did not talk much. Asukwo's mother and Aquan laughed and conversed well into the night. Neither spoke of Asukwo's flying ability. Asukwo made plenty of money at the market, and when he came back from fishing, there was nothing Aquan loved more than to watch his wife in her garden, his sons scrambling about her feet. Regardless of their contentment, the village's bush radio was alive with chatter, snaking its mischievous roots under their hut, its stems through their window, holding its flower to their lips like microphones, following a suquo with the stealth of a grapevine. The bush radio thrived from the rain of gossip. Women said that Asukwo worked juju on her husband to keep him from looking at any other woman, that she carried a purse around her waist hidden in her lapa that her husband could never touch, that she carried all sorts of strange things in it, like nails, her husband's hair, dead lizards, odd stones, sugar, and salt. There were also items folded, wrapped, tied, sewn into cloth in this purse, Had she not been born with the locked hair of a witch, they asked? And look at how wildly her garden grows in the back. And what are those useless plants she grows alongside her yams and cassava? When do you plan to do as you promised? Okwan's father asked. When I am ready, Okwan said. When uh, when Hogan and Bassie are older. Has that woman made you crazy? His father asked. What kind of household is this with just one wife? This kind of woman? It is my house, Papa Okwan said. He broke eye contact with his father. And it is happy and productive. In time, I will get another woman, but not yet. The men often talked about Asukwo's frequent disappearances into the forest and the way she was always climbing things. I often see her climbing her hut to go on the roof when her chickens fly up there, one man said. What is a woman doing climbing trees and roofs? She moves about like a bird, they said. Or bat, one man said, narrowing his eyes. For a while, men quietly went about slapping at bats with switches when they could, waiting to see if a suquo came out of her hut, limping.
A long time ago, things would have been different for Asuquo. There was a time when windseekers in the skies were as common as tree frogs in the trees. Then came the centuries of the foreigners with their huge boats, sweet words, weapons, and chains. After that, windseeker sightings grew scarce. Storytellers forgot much of the myth and magic of the past and turned what they remembered into evil, dark things. It was no surprise that the village was so resistant to Asukwo. Both the men and women liked to talk about Hogan and Bassie. They couldn't say that the two boys weren't Okon's children. Hogan looked like a miniature version of his father with his arrow-shaped nose and bushy eyebrows, and Bassie had his father's careful mannerisms when he ate and crawled about the floor. But people were very suspicious about how healthy the two little boys were. They consumed as much as any normal child of the village, eating little meat and much fruit. Hogan was more partial to udara fruits, while Bassi liked to slowly suck mangoes to the seed. Still, the shiny-skinned boys grew as if they ate goat meat every day. The villagers told each other she must be doing something to them, something evil. No child should grow like that. I see her coming from the forest some days, one woman said. She brings back oddly-shaped fruits and roots to feed to her children. Once again, the word witch was whispered, and discreet fingers pointed Asukwo's way. Regardless of the chatter, women often went to Asukwo when she was stooping over her plants in the garden. Their faces would be pleasant, and one would never guess that only an hour ago they had spoken ill of the very woman from whom they sought help. They would ask if she could spare a yam or some bitter leaf for a goosey soup. They really wanted to know, though, if Asukwo could do something for a child who was coughing up mucus, or if she could make something to soothe a husband's toothache. Some wanted sweet-smelling oils to keep their skin soft in the sun. Others sought a reason why their healthy gardens had begun to wither after a fight with a friend. I'll see what I can do. Asukwo would answer, putting a hand on the woman's back, escorting her inside. And she could always do something. Asukwo was too preoccupied with her own issues to tune in to the gossip of the bush radio. She'd begun to feel the tug deep in the back of her throat again. He was close, her chi, her other half, the one who liked to wear purple. And, as she was, he was all grown up, his thoughts now focused on her. At times, she choked and hacked, but the hook only dug deeper. When her sons were no longer crawling, she began to make trips to the forest more frequently so that she could assuage her growing impatience. Once the path grew narrow and the sound of voices dwindled, she slowly took to the air. Branches and leaves would slap her legs because she was too clumsy to maneuver around them. She could stay in the sky only for a few moments. Then she would sink. But in those moments, she could feel him. When her husband was out fishing and the throb of her menses kept her from spending much time in the garden, she filled a bowl with rainwater and sat on the floor, her eyes wide, staring into it as through a window to another world. Once in a while, she'd dip a finger in, creating expanding circles. 
She saw the blue sky, the trees waving back and forth with the breeze. It didn't take long to find what she was looking for. He was far away, flying just above the tallest trees, his purple pants and caftan fluttering as he flew. Afterwards, she took the bowl of water with her to the river and poured it over her head with a sigh. The water always tasted sweet and felt like the sun on her skin. Then she dove into the river and swam deep, imagining the water to be the sky and the sky to be the water. Some nights, she was so restless that she went to her garden and picked a blue passion flower. She ate it, and when she slept, she dreamt of him. Though she could see him clearly, he was always too far for her to touch. She had started to call him the Purple One. Aside from his purple attire, he wore cowrie shells dangling from his ears and around his wrists and had a gold hoop in his wide nose. Her urge to go to him was almost unbearable. As her mind became consumed with the purple one, her body was less and less interested in Aquan. Their relationship quickly changed. Aquan became a terrible beast fed by his own jealousy. He desperately appealed to Asuquo's mother, who in turn yelled at Asuquo's distracted face. Aquan would angrily snatch the broom from Asuquo and sweep out the dry leaves that kept blowing into their home, sneezing as he did so. He tore through her garden with stamping feet and clenched fists, scratching himself on thorns and getting leaves stuck in his toenails, and his hands became heavy as bronze to her skin. He forbade her to fly, especially in the forest. And out of fear for her sons, she complied. But it did not stop there. The rumors mixed with jealousy, fear, and suspicion spiraled into a raging storm with Asuquo at the center. Her smile turned into a sad gaze as her mind continued to dwell on her chi that flew somewhere in the same skies she could no longer explore. Each night, her husband tied her to the bed where he made what he considered love to her body, for he still loved her. Each time, he fell asleep on top of her, not moving till morning, when he sneezed himself awake. Even her sons seemed to be growing allergic to a suquo. She had to frequently wipe their noses when they sneezed. Sometimes they cried when she got too close, and they played outside more and more, preferring to help their father dry the fish he brought home than their mother in the garden. A suquo often cried about this in the garden when no one was around. Her sons were all she had. One day, Oquan felt sick. His forehead was hot, but yet he shivered. He was weak, and at times he yelled at phantoms he saw floating about the hut. Please, Osukwo, fly up to the ceiling he begged, grabbing her arm as he lay in bed, sweat beating his brow. Tell them to leave. He pleaded with her to speak with the plants and mix a concoction foul-smelling enough to drive the apparitions away. Asuko looked at the sky, then at Aquan, then at the sky. He'd die if she left him. She thought of her sons. The sound of their feet as they played outside soothed her soul. 
She looked at the sky again. She stood very still for several minutes. Then she turned from the door and went to Aquan. When Aquan gets well, she thought, I will take my sons with me, even if I cannot fly so well. When he was too weak to chew his food, she chewed it first and then fed it to him. She plucked particular leaves and pounded bitter-smelling bark. She collected rainwater to wash him with, and she frequently laid her hands on his chest and forehead. She often sent the boys out to prune her plants when she was with Aquan in the bedroom. The care they took with the plants during this time made her want to kiss them over and over, but she did not, because they would sneeze. For this short time, she was happy. Aquan was not able to tie her up, and she was able to soothe his pain. She was also able to slip away once in a while and practice flying. The moment Aquan was able to stand up straight with no pain in his chest or dizziness, however, after five years of marriage, he went and brought several of his friends to the hut and pointed his finger at Asuquo. This woman tried to kill me, he said, looking at Asukwo with disgust. He grabbed her wrists. She is a witch. Ubio. Ah, one of his friends said, smiling, you finally woke up and seen your wife for what she really is. The others grunted in agreement, looking at Asukwo with a mixture of fear and hatred. Asukwo stared in complete shock at her husband, whose life she had saved her ears following her sons around the yard as they laughed and sculpted shapes from mud. She wasn't sure if she was seeing a quan for what he really was or what he had become. What she was sure of was that in that moment, something burst deep inside her, something that had held the realization of her mistake at bay. She should have listened to that old woman. She should have listened to herself. If it weren't for her sons, she'd have shot through the ceiling into the sky, never to be seen again. Why was all she said? Aquon slapped her then, slapped her hard. Then he slapped her again. Only her chi could save her now. Aquan brought her before the Ekpo Society. He tightly held the thick rope that he'd tied around her left wrist. Her shoulders were slumped and her eyes were cast down. Villagers came out of their huts and gathered around the four old men sitting in chairs and the women kneeling before them in the dirt. Her sons, now only three and four years old, were taken to their aunt's hut. Asuko's hair had grown several feet in length over the years, now there were a few coils of gray around her forehead from the stress. The people stared at her locks with pinched faces as if they'd never seen them before. The Ekpo's society's job was to protect the village from thieves, murderers, cheats, and witchcraft. Nevertheless, these old men had forgotten that once upon a long time ago, the sky was peopled with women and men just like Asukwo. Centuries ago, the Ekpo Society was close to the deities of the forest, exchanging words of wisdom, ideas, and wishes with these benevolent beings who had a passing interest in the humans of the forest. 
But these days, the elders of the Ekpo society were in closer contact with the white men, choosing which wrongdoers to sell to them and bartering for the price. Her husband stood behind her, his angry eyes cast to the ground. All this time, he had let her go in and out of the house whenever she liked. He never asked where exactly she was going. He never asked who she was going to see. It could have just been the forest. He had asked many of the women who they thought the man or men she was being unfaithful with was. They all gave different names. Father warned me that she was unclean, he kept thinking. The four old men sat on chairs wearing matching blue and red lapas, their feet close together, scowls on their faces. One of them raised his chin and spoke. You are accused of witchcraft, he said, his voice shaky with age. One woman said you gave her a drink for her husband's sore tooth and all his teeth fell out. One man said he saw you turn into a bat. Many people in this village can attest to this. What do you have to say for yourself? Asuko looked up at the men, and for the first time, her ears ringing, her nostrils flaring, she felt rage, though not because of the accusations. It made her face ugly. The purple one was so close, and these people were not listening to her. They were in her way blocking out the cool, dusty wind with their noise. Her hands clenched. Many of the people gathered looked away out of guilt. They knew their part in all of this. The chief's wives, their arms around chests, looked on waiting and hoping to be rid of this woman who many said had bedded their husbands numerous times. You see whatever you want to see, she said through dry lips. I've had enough. You can't keep me from him. She heard her husband gasp behind her. If they had been at home, he'd have beaten her. Nevertheless, his blows no longer bothered her as much. These days, her essence sought the sky. It was September. The Harmakin winds would be upon the village soon, spraying dust onto the tree leaves and into their homes. She'd hold out her arms and let the dust devils twirl her around. Soon. But she still couldn't fly that well yet, especially with her shoulders weighed down by sadness. If only these people would get out of the way. Then she would take her sons where they would be safe, and the caretakers she chose would not tell them lies about her. Let the chopnut decide, the fourth elder said, his eyes falling on a suquo like charred pieces of wood. In three days, she almost laughed despite herself. Asukwo knew the plant from which the chopped nut grew. In the forest, the doomsday plant thrived during rainy season. Many times she'd stopped to admire it. Its purplish bean-like flower was beautiful. When the flower fell off, a brown kidney-shaped pod replaced it. She could smell the six highly poisonous chopped nuts inside the pod from meters away. Even the bush rats, with their weak senses of smell and tough stomachs, died minutes after eating it. Asukwo looked up at the elders, one by one. She curled her lip and pointed at the elder who had spoken. She opened her mouth wide as if to curse them, but no sound came out. 
Then her eyes went blank again, and her face relaxed. She mentally left her people and let her mind seek out the sky. Still, a tear of deep sadness fell down her face. The four of elders stood up and walked into the forest where they said they would consort with the old ones. Those three days were hazy and cold as the inside of a cloud. Aquan tied Asuko to the bed as before. He slept next to her, his arm around her waist. He bathed her, fed her, and enjoyed her. In the mornings, he went to the garden and quietly cried for her. And he cried for himself, for he could not pinpoint who his wife's lover was. Every man in the village looked suspect. Asuko's eyes remained distant. She no longer spoke to him. She did not even look at him, and she did not notice that her babies were not with her. Instead, she unfocused her eyes and let her mind float into the sky, coming back occasionally to command her body to inhale and exhale air. Her chi joined her here. Several hundred miles away from the village, a thousand feet into the sky, now he was close enough that for the first time, a part of them could be in the same place. Asukwo leaned against him as he took her locks into his hands and brought them to his face, inhaling her scent. He smelled like dry leaves, and when he kissed her ears, Asukwo cried. She wrapped her arms around him and laid her head on his chest until it was time to go. She knew he would continue making his way to her, though she told him it was too late. She'd underestimated the ugliness that had dug its roots underneath her village. The elders came to Okwan in Asukwo's home, a procession of slapping sandals, much of the village following. People looked through windows and doorways, many milling about outside, talking quietly, sucking their teeth, and shaking their heads. Above, a storm pulled its clouds in to cover the sky. The elders came, and her husband brought chairs for them. We have spoken with those of the bush, one of them said. Then he turned around, and a young man brought in the chop nut. Her husband and three men held her down as she struggled. Her eyes never met her husband's. One man with jagged nails placed the chop nut in her mouth, and a man smelling of palm oil roughly held her nose, forcing her to swallow. Then they let go and stepped back. She wiped her nose and eyes, her lips pressed together. She got up and went to the window to look at the sky. The three young women and two young men watching through the window wordlessly stepped back with guilty looks, clearing her view of the gathering clouds. She braced her legs, willing her body to leave the ground. If she could get out the window into the clouds, she would be fine. She'd return for her sons once she had vomited up the chop nut. But no matter how hard she tried, her body would only lift a centimeter off the ground.
She was too tired. And she was growing more tired. All around her were quiet, waiting for the verdict. The rumble of thunder came from close by. She stood for as long as she could, a whole half hour, until her sides began to burn. The fading light flowing through the window began to hurt her eyes. Then it dimmed. Then it hurt her eyes again. She could not tell if it was due to the chopnut or the approaching storm. The walls wavered, and she could hear her heartbeat in her ears. It was slowing. She lay back on the bed on top of the rope a Quan had used to tie her down. Soon she did not feel her legs and her arms hung at her side. The room was silent, all eyes on her. Her bare breasts heaved, sweat trickling between them. Her mind passed her garden to her boys and landed on her chi. Her mind's eye saw him floating in the sky, immobile, a frown on his face. As the room dimmed and she left her body, he dropped from the sky only 30 miles south of Asukwo's village of Old Calabar. As he dropped, he swore to the clouds that they would not see him for many, many years. The wind outside wailed through the trees, but within an hour it died quickly. The storm passed without sending down a single drop of rain to nurture the forest. No, Harmattan winds shook the trees that year. They had turned around, returning to the Sahara in disgust. A year later, on the anniversary of Asukwo's death, the winds returned, though not so strong, reluctant. They have since resumed their normal pattern. Her husband, Aquan, went on to marry three wives and have many children, Asukwo's young boys were raised calling his first wife mother, and they didn't remember the strange roots and fruits their real mother had brought from the forest that had made them strong. As the years passed, when storytellers told of Asukwo's tale, they changed her name to the male name of Ikong. They felt their audience responded better to male characters, and Ikong became a man who roamed the skies, searching for men's wives to snatch because he had died a lonely man and his soul was not at rest. There he is! A boy would yell at the river as the Harmattan winds blew dry leaves about. All the girls would go splashing out of the water, screaming and laughing and hiding behind trees. Nobody wanted to get snatched by the man who moved with the breeze. Nevertheless, it was well over a century before the winds blew with true fervor again. But that is another story. The end.
we are, are graced tonight um, with the presence of Nnedi Okorafor. <laughs> I have so much that I want to talk to you about and, and ask you. Um, first, can you tell me about the origin of this story? I mean, what was mm. the inspiration? Where did it come from, this tale? Gosh. Um, the Windseeker. This character has come from several different, several different places. Um, I guess the first and foremost... I started writing about people who could fly, in particular this character when I was sitting in a hospital bed and I couldn't get up. So, you know, when I, when I was in this really dark place, a dark time in my, in my life, um, and I couldn't move, I kind of came up with this character. And, I, and it was sort of a, a subconscious thing, and, and this character who could fly, who could go anywhere that she wanted to go, who had agency, who was incredibly powerful. And when I look back, it was because, you know, I couldn't move. So earlier in your life, you, you suffered from... Oh, God, it's a long story. But I had, I had um, scoliosis, scoliosis. And there, was a, there were complications with the surgery that left me paralyzed. Right. And so when I was in that situation, this character who could fly kind of came to me. So it was the immobility of being in a hospital bed for how long? Let's see, about three months. Three months. Three months, Immobile. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. Do you dream of flying Nettie? Yes. Do you have lucid <laughs> dreams where yes. you actually are aware that you are flying? Yes, and very can, often. And can direct yourself to and fro? Had one of those dreams three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 too, have lucid dreams um, uh, sometimes, um, although I, I do not fly. My mm. ability seems to be limited to... Um, uh, bounding. Mm. I can I can push off from yes. uh, from a surface or a, a wall um, or or the ground and and leap um, uh, incredibly. Um, like the Hulk. <laughs> I the incredible Hulk. Yes. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. Yeah. I guess that's true. So you 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 do you 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 have um, uh, a spirit that is not earthbound. Yeah, you know, I would think so. It's, it's whenever I have those lucid dreams, yes. and I have them rather often, the first thing I think is, I'm dreaming. Oh, yes. yes. And then the yes. first thing I do is fly. The first thing, every single time, just like, mm, I'll strain, and then I fly, and it's awesome. Yes. It is awesome, isn't it? It is awesome. Do you all have flying dreams? Yes? Are they the yeah. best? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're the best. They're, they're, they're the most awesome. Um, so I've only met you for the first time. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, but I've, I've mm -hmm. met you for the first time just a few hours ago. Um, and, and as, as I, I take you in, um, I realize and recognize that um, the heroines that you write um, are you. Hmm. <laughs> they tend to have long locks. Yeah. They tend to be tall, athletic, <laughs> imaginative, talented, with magical powers. Hmm. Even they're special. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, 
But I think that that most writers take a rib from themselves mm-hmm. and put them mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. into their characters. Mm-hmm. So so there's that. Yeah, I wouldn't deny that almost all of my characters are either a version of me mm-hmm. or have a, a really powerful part of me. Um, and yeah, and, and, yeah, I'm an interesting person. I, I ain't mad at you. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. You, you are one of the most interesting people you've ever met. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Well said. Well said. <laughs> um, family is also a theme that recurs again and again in your work. Always. Tell, talk to me about the importance of, of family in your world. Family is the, the foundation. Mm-hmm. I, my family is the foundation of everything about me. Mm-hmm. I am part of a network. Yes. I'm a part of a, of a past, a present, and a future. Mm-hmm. So, so family in my stories is always going to be the foundation of everything. And from the beginning, from, from the beginning of what I've written, my stories have taken place in either a mythical type of, a mythical Africa or in Africa, especially mm-hmm. Nigeria. Both of my parents are from Nigeria. They came here in 1969. And, and so that link and that, 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 that connection has always been, th- those are where my stories come from. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I like to say that, that Nigeria is my muse. I can particularly say um, in, the, in the Southeast where my father and my mother's villages are, that specific place. I remember when, because I started writing when I was 19, or ni- uh, 20, 20. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in the village soon after that where I just felt, it wasn't like the stories kind of, kind of blew into me, but I felt them, I felt them come into me. I felt them, I, I, something awakened, and it was when I was there. When I was, especially, this was in particular in my father's, um, in my father's village, when mm. I was standing on the balcony, and it was evening, and looking over the forest, and I remember that moment. So it's like that connection, family, and, and my stories—they are—they are one. And family is like the the foundation of everything for mm. me. Can we talk for just a brief moment about the Binti trilogy? Oh, let's do. How it. many have read Binti? <laughs> yes. If you haven't yet, y'all are in for a ride. Um, Binti, hmm. the Binti trilogy. Yes. Um, it is a remarkable piece of work. For those Thank who you. do not know, it is a series of three novellas that feature a central character, mm-hmm. uh, a young woman um, who is. Um, well, I was. I was. <laughs> she. She is a harmonizer. Yes. Um, explain what a harmonizer is or does to our friends. Good question. Um, a harmonizer is someone, it, it's someone first who can, can take mathematics and use it in a way that makes it tangible, that could, like, can manipulate the laws of physics using mathematics. And so a harmonizer brings people together. A harmonizer um, brings peace, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It is a, a remarkable story. Um, and it is one that I know that for the rest of my life I will go back to hmm. and read again and again and again. Um, it is one of those stories that make me feel like all is right with the world. Wow. If only we could get some of that understanding yes. into humanity. Yes. Right? One of the things about um, the character of Binti is that she is a superhero, but 
not in the way that most people expect. Superheroes, we, what we consider heroism often has to do with, with you know, physical strength and, and impacting things and doing things in a really, uh, a very blunt way. Mm-hmm. Binti is, and this is hard to explain if you, if you haven't, if you don't know of the books. Um, so B- the Binti, the Binti series is about a girl in a future part of Africa. It's distant future, and so that's why I say Africa. I don't specify because, mm-hmm. you know, borders have shifted, languages and cultures have blended and all of that. So, so it's in the future. Um, and, and we have this, this main character. She's Himba, and so she's, she, does, she practices some very um, old ways. So she, she applies this uh, kind of like a blend of clay and butter to her skin, so she's very red. And, and she rolls it into her hair as well, so it's visual. She literally applies the earth to her, her flesh. So she is a master harmonizer, which means she's a mathematical genius. And she wants more. So she applies to the finest university in the galaxy. And she gets in. And her family is very traditional and doesn't want her to go. And she wants to go. And she ends up sneaking away from her family, um, sneaking away from her family to go. And when she does this, things don't go as she, as she anticipates. So what we learn about Binti is that she has to, she basically at one point, very early on in the, novella, the first novella, has to fight for her life, mm. like in a very real way. She has to fight for her life. And the way that she fights for her life and ends up saving a large, basically a planet full of people is through... I'm giving away a lot, but, you know. You're the author. Spoiler alerts are allowed. I got to (laughs) talk. There are three parts, so I got to talk. But, like, the way that she does this is through, uh, it's not through brute brute strength. It's through negotiating. It's through peacemaking. And that is very, very important. That is a very important theme in these stories. It's a different type of heroism. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really important to me when I wrote those novellas. They're very hopeful. I mean, when I I read the Binti trilogy, I I definitely get a sense of of hope and and optimism for for the the human species. Mm. Um, Were you, by chance, a a, a Star Trek fan at all? Gee, let me think. <laughs> and Star Wars as well, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. These things make their way into our literary DNA yeah. and, and then come forth yeah. in interesting ways. For me, Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future, I'm a, mm. obviously a huge science fiction geek, um, and it was, it was rare for me. Um, and uncommon to find heroes in yeah. the pages of the science fiction stories that yep. I read who looked like yep. me. Um, uh, Octavia Butler was a revelation mm-hmm. uh, for me. Yes, yes, yes. <sighs> I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to Nnedi Okorafor. <laughs> I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to LeVar Burton. <laughs> so, feelings very mutual. <laughs> I, I, could, I could and hope to have the opportunity to spend a lot more time in conversation with you, Nettie Okorafor. Please, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together <laughs> for a true goddess of the written word. Thank you. True goddess <laughs> Thank you. of the written word. <laughs> Thank you.
Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith. Music, of course, provided by Cahil El-Zabar. You can find Cahil performing across the country and the world and find his music online. That's Cahil El-Zabar. And you can find him performing solo and with his ritual trio, the Ethnic Heritage Ensemble. Thank you, as always, to the very windy Matt Gorley, and my great thanks to Nettie Okorafor for allowing me to read her story and for the wonderful conversation. You can find The Winds of Harmatan in her collection entitled Kabu Kabu. There is a forthcoming audiobook version of that collection. Look for that soon. I am also grateful to my friends at WBEZ's podcast, Passport, for inviting me to Chicago and making this possible. Thank you to Shelley Steffens, Simon Tran, and to Tyler Green. Now, if you love the show and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving a review, suggest a story for the show. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelette. I'm LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Hey, Caroline. Yes? What do you get when you mix some amazing guests, two hosts with microphones, I think that's you and me, and the Statue of Liberty? Uh, a live taping of Unladylike in New York City. You got it, girl. Join Kristen and me for Unladylike Live at the Bell House on Wednesday, May 16th. We'll be doing an unladylike take on beauty with all-star guests, comedian Sashir Zameda and writer Gia Tolentino. Will Caroline's clinical strength deodorant hold up to the task? No, because it hasn't historically. Tickets are available now at thebellhouseny.com. But hurry, they won't last long. They really won't. Because my mom is buying them all. Yeah. So. Thank you, Sally. Please also come. See y'all there. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.